0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: Godspeed, John Glenn.
0: Roger, Zero-G, and I feel fine. You my be out. Okay, I'm out.
1: How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder?
0: At last, huh?
1: When that baby
0: light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
1: Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 389 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Prehistory Mole Part 3. Continuing from the previous episode, The next piece of hardware I want to cover are the specialized mole spacesuits. The mole program's requirement for spacesuits were a product of the spacecraft design. Remember, the Gemini B capsule had very little room inside, and the mole astronauts gained access to the laboratory through the hatch in the heat shield. This required a more flexible suit, than those of the NASA astronauts. The NASA astronauts had custom-made sets of flight, training, and backup suits, but for the mole, the intention was that the space suits would be provided in standard sizes with adjustable elements. The U.S. Air Force asked the David Clark Company, International Latex, B.F. Goodrich, and Hamilton Standard for design proposals for a spacesuit in 1964. Hamilton Standard and David Clark each developed four prototype suits for the mole. A competition was held at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in January of 1967, and a product contract was awarded to Hamilton Standard, who won the competition. At least 17 blue mole. MH-7 training suits were delivered between May 1968 and July 1969. A single MH-8 flight configuration suit was delivered in October 1968 for certification testing. The flight suit was intended to be worn during launch and re-entry. The contract for the launch re-entry suit was followed by a second competition in September of 1967, for a suit for the extravehicular activity. This competition was also won by Hamilton Standard. The design was complicated by the Air Force, concerns that a crew member might slip their tethers and float away. As a result, an astronaut maneuvering unit was developed and integrated with the life support system as an Integrated Maneuvering and Life Support System. The design was completed in October 1968 and a prototype without cover garments was delivered in March 1969. Sadly, as it turned out, the cover garments were never completed. Now that we've covered the main hardware, let's talk a little about the launch site selection. Which isn't as obvious as it would first seem. The military director of the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, Brigadier General John L. Martin, Jr., suggested that mole launches be made from Cape Kennedy, as launches from the West Coast would imply a polar orbit, which in turn would lead the enemy to assume that the objective of the mission was reconnaissance. Keep in mind, The reconnaissance was supposed to be kept secret. General Martin's concerns were considered, but there were practical issues as well. For the best reconnaissance, mole needed to be flown in a polar orbit, but a launch due south from Cape Kennedy would overfly southern Florida, which of course raised safety concerns. However, The launch of the Tyros weather satellites had successfully performed a dog-leg maneuver flying east and then south to avoid southern Florida. But that dog-leg maneuver required special State Department approval, as it meant overflying Cuba. The State Department was concerned that the loss of a mole with a classified payload over Cuba would not only be a danger to life and property, but a serious security concern as well. Moreover, the dogleg maneuver would reduce the 14,000 kilogram orbital payload by 900 to 2,300 kg, thus reducing the equipment that could be carried or the duration of the mission or both. So it seemed like the CAPE was out of the question, and the decision was made to use the western test range where polar orbit insertion would not be a problem. This brought up the cost concern. The cost of construction of a Titan III facility, including the purchase of the land, was estimated to be at $193 million in today's dollars and the required supporting ground equipment would cost another 491 million in today's dollars the announcement that the mole would be launched from the western test range caused an outcry in Florida's news media which decried it as a wasteful duplication of facilities because The recently completed $957 million, in today's dollars, Cape Canaveral Space Launch Complex 41 was specifically built to handle Titan III launches. The chairman of the House Committee of Science and Astronautics, Congressman George P. Miller from California, convened a special hearing on the mole program on February 7th 1966. The first witnesses, the Associate Administrator of NASA, Robert Siemens, supported the MOLE program and the decision to launch satellites into polar orbit from the West Coast, and said that NASA planned to launch weather satellites from there as well. He was followed by Shriver, who detailed the issues involved but the arguments did not satisfy the Floridians. Hearings in the House were followed by ones in the Senate before the Committee on Aeronautical and Space Sciences on February 24, 1966, chaired by the influential Senator Clinton P. Anderson. This time the witnesses were Siemens, Flax, and John S. Foster, Brown's successor as Director of Defense Research and Engineering, DDR&E. The logic of the arguments and the United Front presented dampened criticism and none of the nine members of the House from Florida opposed the 1966 mole budget allocation, effectively approving the West Coast launch selection. So, the Air Force attempted to purchase the land to the south of Vandenberg Air Force Base for the new space launch complex from the owners. But, negotiations failed to reach agreement on a suitable price. So, the government did what it usually does in these situations. It condemned the land they wanted to purchase under the eminent domain law, and forcibly acquired 14,404 acres from the Sudden Ranch and 500 acres from the Scolari Ranch for $56 million in today's dollars. Ground was broken on the new space launch complex, SLC-6, in March of 1966. Work on preparing the site was completed in August This involved 1.1 million cubic meters of earthworks and the construction of access roads, a water supply pipeline, and a railroad siding. By this time, the design of the launch complex had progressed to the point at which it was possible to call for bids for its construction. Major items included a launch pad, umbilical tower, mobile services tower, an aerospace ground equipment building, a propellant loading and storage system, a launch control center, a segment receipt inspection building, a ready building, a protective clothing building, and a complex service building. Seven bids for the construction contract were received and it was awarded to the lowest bidder, Santa Fe and Stolt. Of Lancaster California the contract was valued at 126 million in today's dollars construction work was overseen by the Army Corps of Engineers the launch control center segment receipt inspection building and ready building were accepted by the Air Force in August of 1968 of course with any launch there must be preparation for an abort If there was a mole abort, the Gemini B spacecraft could have come down in the eastern Pacific Ocean. To prepare for this contingency, an agreement was reached with Chile in July 1968 for the use of Easter Island as a staging area for search and rescue aircraft and helicopters. To prepare the facility at Easter Island, The 2,000-meter runway, taxiways, and parking areas were resurfaced with asphalt. A communications facility was established. Aircraft maintenance and storage facilities were constructed as well as accommodations for 100 personnel. And finally, one other very important huge facility was constructed for mole. This one at Rochester, New York at Eastman Kodak. It was a camera optical assembly facility. It included a new steel frame building and a masonry building with 13,120 square meters or 141,200 square feet of test chambers built at a cost of $208 in today's dollars. The laboratory was dug into the ground so observers would not realize just how big it was. With hardware and facilities covered, let's talk operations. Of course, the most important operation was reconnaissance. From the mole's regular 280-kilometer orbit, The main camera would have a circular field view of 2,700 meters across, although at top magnification it was more like 1,300 meters. This was much smaller than many of the targets that the NRO was interested in, such as air bases, shipyards, and missile ranges. The astronauts would search for targets using the tracking and acquisition telescopes, which had a circular view of the landscape, about 12 kilometers across, with a resolution of about 9.1 meters. The main camera would focus on the most important targets, providing a very high-resolution image. The aim was to have the most interesting part of the target in the center of the image. Due to the optics used, the image would not be as sharp across the edges of the frame. While surveillance targets were pre-programmed and the camera could operate automatically, astronauts could decide target priority for photographing. By avoiding cloudy areas and identifying more interesting subjects, for example, an open missile silo instead of a closed one, they could save film, which was the major limitation since it had to be returned in the small Gemini V spacecraft. In cloudy areas like Moscow, it was estimated that MOLE would be 45% more efficient in its use of film than an automated satellite system through the ability to react to cloud cover. But for sunnier areas, like the Tyratum missile complex, this might be no more than 15% more efficient. But the selective targeting afforded by human-guided surveillance would be more efficient than that obtained by robotic satellites. Of the 159 KH-7 Gambit satellite photographs of the Tyratum area, only 9% showed missiles on the launch pads. And of 77 photographs of missile silos, only 21% were with open doors. The analyst identified 60 mole targets in the complex. Only two or three could be photographed on each pass, but astronauts could select the most interesting ones on the spur of the moment and photograph them with greater resolution than the KH-7 gambit was capable. It was hoped that the valuable technical information would thereby be obtained. The Air Force expected that an improved version of the mole space station known as Block II was to be available for the 6th crew flight in July of 1974, and it would add image transmission and geodetic system targeting. Astronauts would perform infrared, multispectral, and ultraviolet astronomy when they had time during an extended mission duration on twice annual flights. After Block 2, the MOL program managers hoped to build larger permanent facilities, a planning document depicted 12-man and 40-man stations, both with self-defense capability. It described the 40-man, Y-shaped station as a space-borne command post in synchronous orbit, with the key requirement Post-attack survivability, the station would be capable of strategic, tactical decision-making during a general war. In 1966, a tentative schedule of flights was arrived at. The first flight was a qualification flight and it was going to use a simulated orbiting vehicle. And that was to occur in April of 1969. Then in July of 1969, there was to be a second uncrewed Gemini B Titan 3M qualification flight. And in December, finally, of 1969, a crew of two commanded by Taylor, possibly with crews, would have spent 30 days in orbit. In April of nineteen seventy-eight, there was to be a second crewed mission. In July of 1970, a third crewed mission. In October of 1970, a fourth crewed mission of 30 to 60 days duration. It was to be an all-navy crew composed of Truly and either Crippen or Overmeyer. And on January 1971, there was a fifth crewed mission planned. Of course, these did not take place, but a mole test flight was launched from Cape Canaveral Space Launch Complex 40 on November 3, 1966 on a Titan 3C launch vehicle. The flight consisted of a mole mock-up built from a Titan II propellant tank and a Gemini spacecraft number two, which had made a suborbital flight before and then had been refurbished as a prototype Gemini B spacecraft. This was the first time an American spacecraft intended for human spaceflight had flown in space twice, albeit without a crew. The adapter connecting the Gemini spacecraft to the laboratory mock-up contained three other spacecraft, two OV-4-1 satellites and an OV-1-6 satellite. The Gemini-B spacecraft separated for a suborbital re-entry while the mole mock-up continued into low Earth orbit where it released the three satellites. The simulated laboratory contained 11 experiments. The Manifold Experimental Package consisted of two micrometeoroid detection payloads, a transmitter beacon designated Orbis Low, a cell growth experiment, a prototype hydrogen fuel cell, a thermal control experiment, a propellant transfer and monitoring system to investigate fluid dynamics in zero gravity, a prototype attitude control system, an experiment to investigate the reflection of light in space, and an experiment into heat transfer. The spacecraft was painted to allow it to be used as a target for an optical tracking and observation experiment from the ground. Eight of the 11 experiments were successful. The hatch installed in the Gemini's heat shield to provide access to the mold during crewed operation was tested during the capsule's re-entry. The Gemini capsule was successfully recovered near Ascension Island in the South Atlantic by the USS LaSalle after a flight of 33 minutes. The laboratory mock-up entered an orbit With an apogee of 305 kilometers, a perigee of 298 kilometers. It remained in orbit until its orbital decay in January of 1967. As with all programs, MOLE had its problems. One was with the public response. With the 1966 18-Nation Committee on Disarmament approaching, there were concerns about how the mole was viewed by the international community. The United States insisted that the mole was in line with the October 1963 United Nations General Assembly Resolution that the exploration and use of outer space should be used only, quote, for the betterment of mankind, end quote. To allay Soviet fears that the mole would carry nuclear weapons, the State Department suggested that Soviet officials be allowed to inspect it for themselves before launch. But this was opposed on security grounds. Public debates of the merits of the mole program was hobbled by its semi secret nature. Writing about the mole as an outsider in nineteen sixty seven, Leonard E. Swartz, a consultant to the Directorate for Scientific Affairs of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, noted that the United States already had SAMOS, Satellites for Reconnaissance, and Vela, Satellites for Surveillance of Nuclear Explosions. But without knowing their capabilities or those of the mole, he could not evaluate the actual cost or benefits of the program. Publicly, the Air Force vaguely described the mole as quote, an effective space building block of very substantial potential, a space resource capable of growth to follow on task. End quote. On completion, Colonel Brady of the Mole Experiments Working Group declared in 1965, We will have configured, acquired, and most important, conducted a manned military space operation, thereby acquiring crews, experience, and equipment that will... If required, allow the Air Force to move into the near-Earth space environment in an orderly and effective manner. End quote. The Soviet Union commissioned the development of its own military space station, Almaz. This project was initiated by Chief Designer Vladimir Chalomi on October 12, 1964 but it was Johnson's announcement of the MOLE program on August 25, 1965 that led to the ALMAS project receiving official endorsement and funding on October 27, 1965. Three ALMAS stations actually flew as Salyut space stations between 1973 and 1976, Before the crude Almas program was canceled in 1978. Other mole problems included cost and delays. Within weeks of President Johnson's announcement of the mole program, it was facing budget cuts. In November of 1965, the director of the NRO, Flax, arbitrarily cut. $128 One hundred and twenty eight million in today's dollars from mole's program fiscal year nineteen sixty seven budget, this reduced the budget to the equivalent of two point three eight nine billion in today's dollars. Brown, the director of the Defense Research and Engineering DDr and E, learned that McNamara intended to limit the program to $933 million in today's dollars for fiscal year 1967 the same allocation as in fiscal year 1966 in response to the rising cost of the Vietnam War. In August 1965 the first uncrewed qualification flight had been expected to take place in late 1968 With the first crewed mission in early 1970, on the assumption that engineering development would commence in January of 1966. Since that was now unlikely, McNamara saw no reason to continue with the original budget. Brown examined the schedules, advising McNamara that a crewed mission in April 1969 would require a minimum of $1.828 billion in today's dollars for the fiscal year of 1967. And that would impose a delay of the first flight of 3 to 18 months. But McNamara was unmoved and only $828 million in today's dollars was the sum requested in the budget submitted to Congress in January 1966. When the mole engineering development phase commenced in September of 1966, it became clear that the Air Force estimates of the project cost and those of the major contractors were a long way apart. McDonnell requested $1.278 billion in today's dollars for a fixed price plus incentive fee contract to design and build Gemini B., which the Air Force budgeted at only $920 million in today's dollars. Likewise, Douglas wanted significantly more for the laboratory vehicles, and General Electric said they needed more as well. In response, the Mole Service Program Office reopened negotiations for systems not under contract and halted the issuance of Dorian clearances to contract personnel. This had the desired effect, and by December 1966, the major contractors had reduced their prices, bringing them closer to the Air Force's estimates. However, on January 7, 1967, the Office of the Secretary of Defense informed the Mole Systems Program Office that it needed to limit contracts in fiscal year 1968 to the equivalent of $2.6 billion in today's dollars, which was significantly less than the contractors wanted, and this meant that the prime contracts had to be renegotiated. Budget cuts were not the only reason for the project's scheduling slippage. In December of 1966, Eastman Kodak advised that it would not be able to deliver the optical sensors by the original target date of January 1969, for a crewed mission in April of 1969. Kodak asked for a 10-month extension to October 1969, which pushed the date of the first crewed mission back to January of 1970. To accommodate this, the date of the first qualification flight was pushed back still further to December of 1970, with the first crewed mission in August of 1971. Eventually, delays and cost increases raise the total cost of MOLE to the equivalent of $15 billion in today's dollars. Aware of the program's budgetary and political difficulties, the astronauts in early 1968 advised General Blaymeyer, head of the system program office, to eliminate the uncrewed qualification missions. The August 1971 date was finally changed to December of 1971. As if MOL did not have enough challenges, even the use of astronauts came into question. A few months after MOL development began, the program started working on an automated version of MOL that replaced the crew compartment with film re-entry vehicles. Human Reconnaissance from Space was tested on Gemini 5 in 1965, which conducted 17 Air Force military experiments, including photographing missile launches from Vandenberg Air Force Base and observations of the White Sands Proving Ground. As automated technology improved, however, those within the MOLE program increasingly feared that astronauts were being eliminated. Al Cruz said, quote, It became obvious that all we were was a backup in case the unmanned reconnaissance system didn't work. End quote. Although Crippen did not think automation could completely replace astronauts, he agreed with Cruz that automation technology was rapidly improving. In February of 1966, Mole Program Director Shriver commissioned a report examining humans' usefulness on the station. The report, which was submitted in May of 1966, concluded that they would be useful in several ways, but implied that the program would also need to justify the cost and difficulty of the mole versus a robotic version. Although it did not fly until July 1966, the authors were aware of the capabilities and limitations of the KH8 Gambit 3 satellite. It could not achieve the same resolution as the Dorian camera on Mole, and the automation necessitated a longer development time and added weight. But the Dorian camera had a resolution of 33 to 38 centimeters, that is 13 to 15 inches, and it could remain in orbit longer and carry more film than earlier spy satellites. The report concluded that crude systems had many advantages over automated ones, which lost up to half their images to cloud cover on a typical mission. A human could select the best angle for a photograph and could switch between color and infrared or some other special film depending upon the target. This was especially useful for dealing with camouflaged targets. The mole also had the ability to change orbits and could shift from its regular 280 km orbit to a 370 to 560 km one. Giving it a view of the entire Soviet Union. The report's authors believe that unmanned mole would more likely fail early missions and then slowly improve, while manned mole would be self healing and crews would not repeat mistakes. Experience on projects Mercury, Gemini, and the X-15 had demonstrated that crew initiative, innovation, and improvisation was often the difference between success and failure of the mission. Because of the early failures, they predicted that unmanned mold would always be less successful overall than manned mold, regardless of the number of missions. After manned mole perfected the system, the program could fly both unmanned and manned mission, the report stated. Debate also persisted about the value of the very high-resolution imaging being developed for mole and KH9 hexagon satellite, or whether the resolution provided by Gambit 3 was sufficient. After the Liberty Incident in June of 1967 and the Pueblo Incident in January of 1968, there was an increased focus on intelligence gathering by satellite. The director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Richard M. Helms, commissioned a report on the value of Very High Resolution, which was completed in May 1968. It concluded that it would help identify smaller items and features and increase the understanding of Soviet procedures and processes and the capabilities of some of its industrial facilities. It would not alter estimates of technical capabilities or assessment of the size and deployment of forces. Whether the benefit justified the cost was unclear, but by 1968, the Air Force decided that the automated system's longer development time and less certain capability meant that first mole missions required astronauts. Later ones could be crewed or automated as needed. Notations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mildly mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Hannis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 389 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Prehistory Mole Part 3. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you need to contact me, please use the new email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Don't use the old one, as it will not work. Our next episode should appear by June 2nd. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 209 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if you're using Google, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine will not find it. Google made some changes. I don't know why. My Twitter handle is working again. Of course I lost over eleven hundred followers during the hacking of the account, but it is back up again and it's the same as it was at Space Rocket Hist. So please follow if you can. I'm up to 112 followers. Over a hundred. That's good. Got some of them back. And you can also follow on Facebook if you like. You can also keep up with me on patreon.com slash space rocket history where, in addition to episodes, I post some extra things. For this week's afterthoughts, of course I would like to apologize for my mispronunciation of words and names, which I usually do on every episode, and I'm sorry about that. I continue to enjoy the study of the mole program, and I think you do too, judging from the feedback I'm receiving. I'm so glad I had a chance to cover it as part of the prehistory of Skylab. Next time, I intend to finish off Mole and return to the Apollo Hardware Skylab history. It's amazing this Mole program just hid in secrecy while tons of money was spent on it. But apparently not enough money to complete the program. Even Mole was subject to the whims of politicians. But all that money did not go to waste, and I will cover that next time. It's so impressive. They even had a launch facility, and it was almost finished, and an abort recovery base. And how about that Kodak camera optical assembly facility? Over 140,000 square feet, most of it underground. That is huge. I guess they needed it because they certainly weren't going to make Instamatic cameras there. And then there was the unrealized future of Mole. A space-borne command post with up to 40 people. With Jiminy hardware. Wow, that is just amazing to me. Remember I mentioned that test flight they made with a mock-up and a Titan III-C. Well, I talked about the capsule just a little bit, and I wanted to give you a little bit more details on that very special capsule they used for that. In January of 1965, the Gemini 2 suborbital test mission was launched with the second prototype Gemini capsule. Then in March of 1965, NASA approved the transfer of that capsule to the Air Force for modifications into the first prototype of the Gemini B capsule. In November of 1965, the first manned orbiting laboratory and Gemini B suborbital test flight was launched. So, if you don't count the Mercury capsule, used on flights of Mercury Redstone 1 and Mercury Redstone 1A, and you don't count the Mercury capsule used on test flights for the Little Joe 5A and 5B, or the Mercury capsule used on flights for Mercury Atlas 3 and Mercury Atlas 4, then (laughs) Gemini spacecraft number 2 became... The only re-entry capsule of the United States to be reflown before SpaceX Crew Dragon. It is also the first capsule to ever be flown twice in space. The capsule was transferred to the Smithsonian Institution as part of the National Air and Space Museum collection. A mock-up of the Gemini B capsule was put on display in the Allen and Malcolm Lockheed and Glenn Martin Space Gallery at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force in 2016. The flown Gemini Spacecraft II capsule was put on display in the exhibit hall of the Air Force Space and Missile Museum Museum of the U.S. Air Force at Cape Canaveral in 2017. I have seen this in person, and if you're there, it's definitely worth taking a look. Now, that was a lot of ifs in those statements in there, so pay attention to all the ifs, but (laughs) it it is uh, an interesting capsule there, so definitely check that out if you have the opportunity. For those interested in the house progress, we've been moved in for about six weeks now and loving it, as Get Smart used to say. A lot of you don't know who Get Smart is. <laughs> it was a great old show, but uh, <laughs> he had these sayings and and he would say things like, and loving it was one of them. Sorry about that, Chief. But that's beside the point. In the past two weeks, there are no items that were checked off on the punch list. I'm not certain, but I think the basement leak is stopped, which is good. Now, what did happen? Mrs. SRH finally got her circle driveway. She has wanted one for 40 years. So she stuck with me that long, and I finally got her one. Of course, it is made of gravel because concrete is way too expensive. It's funny, I got a, two price quotes on the circle part of the drive and one came out at $3,100 while the other guy only wanted 1300 So, you know which one I picked. So, so I guess it pays to shop around a bit. Anyway, she's pretty happy with it. I've been posting some pictures of the house every other week on Patreon. Next week, I'm going to post a picture of the mighty Yadkin River that I mentioned in the outro. Have you ever wondered, is it really that mighty? (laughs) Well, we haven't had much rain recently, so it's gotten a little bit mild lately due to the lack of water, but I'm telling you, this river will overflow its its banks, and we've got some bottom land around it, and it will overflow into that bottom land and flood it. But right now, it's definitely not in flood mode. But anyway, since it borders the property, I thought some of you might like to see it. So it will be on my Patreon page at patreoncom space rocket history. And that is your house update. Over the past fortnight, we received one donation and pledge. And I would like to thank Robert M from San Antonio, who sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Oh, wait a minute, we did receive one anonymous donor, too. So that, that was a total of two. Our Patreon Donors have reached 254, which means we've lost two since the change in month between April and May. The goal is to reach 300 by the end of 2022. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 317, with an overall goal of 500 for the year. May is really starting off weak. We've only had Two new donations and we lost two Patreons. In fact, the whole year's donations have been low. But two new donations in two weeks is a bit concerning. And unfortunately, not financially sustainable. So if you are enjoying this podcast that's been running over nine years without commercial interruptions and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and checking on the clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you would like to donate by mail, which is great for me, you can send me an email and I will give you my address. The email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
1: Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. So, you heard what Mike did for me. (laughs) After that first estimate, I did not think I was going to get the circle drive. Boy, was I surprised when I came home one day from helping my mom. It was happening. The circle drive was being graded and the rock delivered. I was and still am so very happy with the driveway. As Mike said, I have waited A long time for that. Thanks, Mike. Now for the drawing. Remember, the winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Mole Olson. Mole Olson, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. My apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 317 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Growing Up with Space Flight Skylab slash ASTP by West Olaszewski, The National Reconnaissance Office, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 390, posted by June 2nd, 2022.
1: Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.